Goodbye. Hello, and welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. This is a recording from last Friday, April 2nd, with me, Tammy, Andy, and a special guest, Professor Naomi Murakawa of Princeton University. Jay had a week off. Naomi Murakawa is an associate professor of African American Studies at Princeton. She works on racial inequality, politics, and the carceral state in the 20th and 21st century US. In 2014, Naomi published The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America on Oxford University Press. And previously, she was in her old stomping ground of Seattle in the University of Washington's Political Science Department. If you aren't already familiar with Naomi's work as a scholar and an activist in the community, you should know that she has been a welcome, often dissenting voice in mainstream debates around mass incarceration and police reform. We've been eager to talk with her about last summer's wave of BLM protests, rising crime rates, recent incidents of physical violence against Asian people in the US, and what we want from the category and discourse around hate crimes. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thanks. What, can you tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up, um, how you became involved in political thinking and political activism, mm -hmm. how you kind of landed on you know I don't know if you want to talk tell us about your dissertation topic, but how you came to <laughs> study what you study and how you became interested in, in these topics. Yeah, um, so I was uh, uh, born in Oakland, California, and grew up in a little suburban El Cerrito. Um, my family is three, or depending on how you count it, four generations in California. Um, if there are any uh, old timers who hung out on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, you might have seen the sign for the Murakawa Nursery. Um, it, oh, was, wow. it was a very popular spot for, um, for Christmas trees and all kinds, and fertilizer in bulk. And then what, then like, yeah, how did you, I mean, I guess one question, not, you know, I know this is like a little, could be a little like dumb sounding, but I think it's actually a useful question to ask. You know, you're Japanese American, I assume. Yeah. How yes. did you wind up um, not doing Asian American studies and doing African American studies, I guess? Right, right. So it's a good question. It's a, it's a fair question. Um, you know, I, I will say, um, Forms of punishment and incarceration um, ha have affected my family um, in in ways that you're certainly familiar with. Uh, also, my father was a probation officer for Contra Costa County for a number number of years. Um, he started early enough so that uh, probation work was thought of as social work, uh, and he retired early. Um, uh, partially out of um, some discontent for what the profession had become. And I actually do think he's one of the liberals who mm. built liberal, built prison America. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, and, and that's how, that's, that's how the investigations in this particular topic started. Um, 
I don't feel like I rejected Asian American studies. If that is that, if that's what's happening in the question, I don't feel <laughs> no, like no, there no. is any like. Uh, actually, I think you know. I wonder. It sounds like your experience or your family's experience as an Asian American family might have been constructive and constitutive of your interest in African American studies as well, uh, and these questions of minority groups and and how the government treats them and so on. Yeah, is that fair? Yes, that's definitely fair. Had, were, were you thinking about your father a lot when, or not your father, but specifically, but sort of your experience, his experience as you were kind of thinking about your first project, what you, you called you know, liberals who helped um, kind of unintentionally, perhaps, um, Boutrous, the, the carceral state? For sure. For sure. It was actually um, a, a kind of in- intense family experience um, because I was so late with the book and he came to visit me. <laughs> I mean, painfully late. <laughs> and he came to visit me, and uh, I was sort of, in a sense, fighting him off and trying to protect my time during the day so I could get through what were supposed to be copy edits, what was actually me trying to rewrite the book. And <laughs> this, was, this went on for a few days, and he, we finally started talking about, well, what are you doing all day? Like, for real, what are you doing all day while I'm here visiting you and you're staying in your office? And, it, and then I started sharing... Um, uh, drafts of of chapters and we had some i mean we had some very moving conversations about what it is to um to have in part to have good intentions and in part to just have a job (laughs) and to just think of it as a job and click in day to day um and, and and so maybe we can talk a little bit about that book since not everyone who's listening has read it. Um, so the first civil right came out in 2014, so right around the emergence of Black Lives Matter, really well-timed. Um, and to my mind, it really traces what seems to be a kind of unwavering dedication among liberal U.S. politicians um, to to install systems of policing and harsh sentencing from the mid-20th century to the present. So you take it back sort of further than I think a lot of people would index the development of these systems. Um, and in this sense, your book ran counter um, to a more simplistic history that's told in Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. Can you give a brief overview of the argument of your book? Um, I can, and I'm going to go ahead and actually segue to the conversation um, on hate crimes and hate crime legislation that's happening right now. So Great. there is a, a conventional story, one that I'll say is is not wrong. And the conventional story is um, conservatives, particularly those of the Republican Party and the rise of Southern Republicans, um, marketed themselves to disaffected white voters by um, pitching tough-on-crime policies as a way to speak to a variety of insecurities and in particular tap into their um, intense anti-black racism that could not be spoken as anti-black racism. And that's that story's not incorrect. It's just such a powerful story that it's actually, uh, I think, drowned out a number of other forces that have contributed to carceral America. And some of those forces are things like our fixation on procedural rights, the idea that if you fulfill due process of law, you can dole out maximum pain and suffering, and it's legal and perfectly acceptable. And there's another part, which is that criminal law is not only 
for, uh, it's not only developed in the name of retribution, maximum punishment, it's also presented in the name of welcoming people into full citizenship in the U.S. nation state. And that's where hate crimes, which is where we are now, is part of carceral state development that is a way of taking a legitimately aggrieved, victimized population and offering them into the American family by way of saying, we will jail and kill people who harm you. Welcome. So just specifically you're talking about in the current context, right, of defending Asian Americans in their name and increasing carceral efforts in their name. What are, in your book, I mean, what are those kind of previous examples, if not Asian Americans, of people who are kind of given citizenship through sort of carceral um, defense, I guess. Mm -hmm. I should say, I, I mean, given, given citizenship in the most nonsense, empty, hollow citizenship ways that people actually don't ask for, right? So, um, uh, but I would say um, uh, Truman's intervention in defining the first civil right as freedom from arbitrary and mob violence um, was the beginning of a certain type of language to build the carceral state to um, protect all people equally, to protect all people from arbitrary violence equally. And the, I'd say some of the most considerable growth happened during the Johnson administration, which sort of uh, toggled this line between saying all things of carceral development, like, yes, we need to be tougher on crime, also, we need to welcome more black people into all of the positions of power, and we need more evidence gathering, and we need uh, friendly, fair policing. And also, while police are building trust, we need to um, load them up with tanks and new technology. And, and, and the carceral development really happens all, all together. Yeah, that seems to be a trend that you observe like consistently throughout this period of history, which is that liberals kind of do everything. Like they say all of the right things, yes. but then they kind of end up in the exact same place. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel like through this period of Black Lives Matter, I guess, since the publication of your book, that we've been sort of recycling the same discourse or are there any kind of breakthroughs? I, would, I think abolition is a real breakthrough. And abolitionist thinking has been around for a long time. I would say that in this last round of massive protest, the way that defund the police broke on to, into the national conversation, the way activists forced it into the national conversation is a very meaningful breakthrough. Could I actually ask um, to go a little bit further? Do you, in your mind, do you have a sense of like, when does abolitionism as a thing begin? Let's say before it becomes really public, like in, is it in activist circles, academic circles? Is there like, and do you remember, do you feel like in graduate school you were already sort of calling yourself an abolitionist or in hindsight would you think of yourself as one <laughs> that's interesting i mean i have to say honestly through grad school no and i feel a bit silly saying it now but you know part of the reason i was interested in so-called liberal policies this is embarrassing that in my own little liberal heart, there were a lot of things that I thought, damn, that might be a good idea. 
Right. Right? Like, well, well, why wouldn't we want more black police officers? Um, And why wouldn't we want fair sentencing guidelines? Totally. Like, and... and, and it was actually through researching and through my own sort of liberal impulses that I came to the other side. But I did have to write my way there. Yeah. And do you want to expand a little bit on some of those reforms that keep being articulated and rearticulated? Like, yeah, the black police officers, mm-hmm. that we need more diversity in the ranks or we need more surveillance. Like mm-hmm. we can achieve things through visibility like cameras. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, maybe just give a couple examples of things that, that you now see as sort of misguided or so, maybe like actually intentional. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that anything that is presented under the name alternative to incarceration mm. is a problem and part of carceral development. Um, all of these things grow together. So you have something like the introduction of um, electronic monitoring, which is a, originally put forward as the alternative. It, what happens is that most administrators end up selecting people for that kind of surveillance who probably wouldn't have gotten other forms of surveillance in the first place. So as we create more tiers of punishment mm-hmm. and surveillance and regulation, we just divide the populace of criminalized people into finer and finer tiers, which ends up being a net expansion. We see some similar dynamics. Not entirely, but again, these things aren't always one for one, but we see some similar dynamics with regard to drug courts, which were presented as we need to ease um, uh, the court strain and the overcrowded prisons by filtering this population into courts where they have check-ins and they pay for services and it's presented as rehabilitation. And what we find is many states actually selected for drug courts a population that probably would not have been subjected to prison in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then we also find that people who fail all of the stringent requirements of drug court are actually subject to incarceration when they don't fulfill all of the requirements. So a lot of these things end up being addendums um, rather than replacements. Do you want to talk about um, the kind of overarching like history of this, which is a, a sort of move to militarize or, or to kind of police everything in our lives? <laughs> I mean, because I think one of that's a really, you know, something that I took from your book, which is just it this kind of discourse, like the way as a way of thinking, policing seeps into everything. Yes. And so you just mentioned some of the fees and fines that are, you know, um, that are assessed in the criminal justice system. But of course, it goes way beyond that. So how does that work through this period of history? So. I think that police and criminalization is so normalized in everyday life that it is completely colonized all of our basic language. So mm-hmm. a friend gave me a sign that says justice for Breonna Taylor. And I'm, I've actually been hesitant to show it because I think the word justice for people means prison. Yeah, wow. And there's so many examples of the language of criminalization just taking over everyday life. Um, One of my favorite students did a fantastic thesis on charter schools, um, especially charter schools that are uh, uh, um, 
reaching out to black children and claiming to give a, a, a positive um, black-centered education, mm-hmm. he found that their disciplinary rules map violations onto categories of the criminal code. So you have a third wow. grader that mm-hmm. pushes another third grader, and that's categorized as assault. Oh my God. Um, and this is where we get into areas now where I, I, I think we have all kinds of procarceral confusions in our language because hate maps very cleanly onto a criminal category designation. And so when I see protests where the, the primary chant and sign is um, stop Asian hate, I don't know what the program is, and I feel very concerned that legislators and various other um, policymakers are interpreting that as a call for more punitive hate crime enforcement. I mean, I think, you know, we definitely want to, I think that's where we want to dig into kind of the context of the present, but I was actually wondering, um, this is just like the historian question, I guess, is, you know, you talk about this as in our language. These are kind of ideas that have seeped into everyday thinking. I think for a lot of people, it's very tempting to say, well, this is just like human nature, right? This is almost primordial that we want justice for, you know, seeing, you know, someone do something bad. Do you sense that, is there a story that you tell about, um, what happened in the 20th century, perhaps, or in, in the last few decades that accelerated the sense of, you know, what you call like carceral language or carceral ideas in our everyday language? Is it like a, is it a government-led story? Is it an economic story? Um, yeah. I, I mean, you, you know, I think that anything that comes to be gets reduced as primordial and just human nature. This is why so many students tell me that capitalism um, it's, it's just the way it is, and that's the way it's always been. Um, so, and I think that what is on offer is more criminalization, or the institutions that we have set up now that are readily available are offering more criminalization. Um, so people have a variety of demands, and uh, elites give answers on the cheap which tap into the overdeveloped institutions that we have, and those are carceral institutions. Yeah, I mean, so one thing we're thinking to get more specific into the, well, you just mentioned the sort of current campaign, Stop AAPI Hate or Stop Asian Hate, which we see everywhere, right? Um, I think one thing that has kind of come up in a lot of the conversations and readings we've had is that, you know, this effort to... um, defend victims of crime or victims of violence, let's say, um, who are Asian has kind of, for some, led to, for, for a lot of Asian American communities, has led to calls for more policing. Yeah. Um, and this kind of comes into obvious tension, right, with a lot of the abolitionist and, and BLM sort of criticisms of the carceral state this last year. Um, there was an article that came out earlier this week from On the Verge by Jane Hu. And I don't know if you saw it, but just I'll just kind of summarize the relevant part where Jane interviews um, a man named Carl Chan, who is from the Oakland Chinatown's Chamber of Commerce, who talks about how Asian Americans have always been under attack. This is the reality. And he hopes, therefore, that by kind of circulating those videos that we've all seen, um, this will justify demands for more policing to combat anti-Asian violence 
a sentiment shared by many Oakland Chinatown residents. And then Jane says, you know, but calls for increased police presence are in direct opposition to last year's Black Lives Matter protests that sought to raise awareness of the over-policing of black people. The conflict is troubling. Increased surveillance and policing may appear to keep one community safer while putting others in greater peril. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is like, I think for a lot of us, like the sort of impasse of like, well, you know, like, what do we do about this? You know, do you don't want to tell the Asian American community, like, what's, what's, these, these attacks are not happening, right? Um, but, you know, like, it seems to kind of come into direct conflict with, with, with um, the stuff from last summer. What are your general thoughts about this kind of, this framing that seems to be emerging? All right. So I, I want to get to, I do want to get to this. I think there's a lot to learn from history. And we've never been in the same place twice, but I think we can learn a lot from prior struggles and prior disappointments. So can I just talk a little bit about how we have hate crime legislation? Yeah, sure. So, um, okay, so do you know what a hate crime is? You should tell us. Okay, (laughs) so a hate crime is a criminal category that adds an enhancement for crimes committed when they are motivated by animus. And the standard is often selected because of, victims selected because of. Mm -hmm. And the enhancement you're talking about is a sentencing enhancement. Yes. The charging upwards. That's right, that's right. So one thing that's important to note in that definition is that there aren't vulnerable populations who are protected. The hate crime stipulation actually criminalizes acts of bias and prejudice on the terms of race, religion, color, nationality, sexual orientation, and then uh, some more recent additions, and not all states, include uh, gender identity, disability, Mm -hmm. age. All right. So part of what this tells us is that it is a form of penalty enhancement that could be applied to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. So mm-hmm. one of the, I think the only Supreme Court case that we've had with regard to hate crimes was um, uh, a case that it made its way up through the courts. We get to 1993, and it's a case of um, Todd Mitchell, um, a young black, at this point, a young black man who lives in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he and his friends were discussing the movie Mississippi Burning. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the reports and allocations suggest that this was uh, whipping them up into a kind of anti-white frenzy. There was a 14-year-old um, white boy walking by. Um, they beat him up. And the penalty enhancement applied to him in this act of anti-white bias increased the statutory maximum from two years to seven years. There are lots of calls for hate crime penalty enhancements that come in particular moments, such as um, 1992 in the announcement of the acquittal of the police officers who beat Rodney King Mm-hmm. Um, a number of the crimes for which they were uh, arresting black people were um, eligible, were deemed mm-hmm. hate crimes and eligible for penalty enhancements. Um, 
with the attack of the so-called Central Park jogger, um, the, the, the sort of panic and, and frenzy around that produced not only um, the, the coercion of police and prosecutors to get false confessions by the Central Park Five, but on top of that, there were all kinds of charges that NYPD was showing its liberal bias by not charging um, these five black teenagers with hate crime for a penalty enhancement. And, and here's where I'll say, my critique of hate crimes is not that they will be applied the wrong way to the wrong people. Mm-hmm. My critique is that they are trying to criminalize something that is so deep and systemic and is actually only made worse by the criminal justice system. So while I did just give those examples and I do want people to know them, I want to be clear. It's not like I think there's a right way yeah. <laughs> to enforce right. hate, right? That, um, yeah, that these examples are revealing of the inherent problems with this as a category. Yeah. Yeah. I sorry. I said I would do the history, and then yeah. I didn't do it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, so, the anti the anti defamation league. Let me start. The anti defamation league wrote model legislation for hate crime designations and penalties in 1981, and various states started picking up hate crime designations in various forms, and then it was. Um, adopted mostly as a data collection endeavor at the level of the federal government with the Federal Hate Crime Statistics Act of 1990. And there were a number of players who were um, there for the presidential signing in 1990. And these were some of the players who had been very important to um, uh, promoting the Hate Crime Statistics Act of 1990. So the ADL was there. Um, there, there was, had been a lot of work from the National Organization for Victim Assistance. And there were also quite a few um, representatives from the Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project as, right. as there had been um, major pushes to recognize um, what, what at the time was called gay bashing as, as a special kind of offense offense in need of extra, extra protections. And this was thought to be a big deal in 1990. It was thought to be the first uh, presidential signing where representatives of a gay and lesbian organization were there for the signing. Okay. I think this import I think this history of the 1990 Hate Crime Statistics Act is really important because it tells us some basic things about criminalization and what it does politically. So here we are in 1990 at a moment of alleged celebration when George H.W. Bush is, in a sense, recognizing gay and lesbian people. And this is coming off the end of an HIV AIDS virus that from the start was categorized as gay cancer or gay immunodeficiency And you have slews of federal legislators who refuse to provide any of the demanded resources for medical research, for releasing experimental drugs, for providing care. And instead, you have a whole federal apparatus and many others who decided to take a virus and put it into a culture war framework 
of the decline of the American family. So here's what criminalization and hate crime does. It provides a very easy opportunity for ruling class elites to claim redemption on the cheap, having given up none of what people were actually demanding and standing there through symbolic gestures of criminalization, denying everything that they did to engender the death for so many people with HIV and AIDS. And this is where we're here now. And, and the, the, the idea that the criminal justice system is supposed to adjudicate this kind of racism for us is so absurd because it is a classic tale of the way elites take what we should be calling extra legal violence and they sit there and they say, this is illegal violence, mm -hmm. which is a form of total disavowal for everything that they're doing to engender the massive violence and premature death of all the people who are standing up and demanding something better. And what do you think that engendering process looks like right now with regards to Asian Americans? Because I think part of you know what, what is emerging is um, maybe a feeling among Asian Americans, I'll just rehearse the kind of liberal rhetoric that we're hearing, which is, okay, sure, um, I understand that sometimes policing is not the answer. Sure, I understand that, um, you know, this may not be good for all people. However, why does it always have to be us who are unseen and unrecognized? We want the, the government to see us, to acknowledge our pain and suffering just the way that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement got black pain recognized. I That's, think this is okay. part of what the discourse. So sure. yeah, what is your response to that? So I'm just going to go ahead and say the idea that anyone has acknowledged the core demands of Black Lives Matter is laughable and absurd. And I feel comfortable saying that outright. Like that, that is just, that's something that needs to be corrected as a matter of fact. But then there's something more. So I'll say this. In that 1990 moment, which was thought to be a, a, a great bipartisan moment, it's also true that Asian American advocacy groups like the National Democratic Council for APAs was there speaking about the silent epidemic of violence against Asians, especially elderly Asian Americans. Wow. And, here, and here's where I want to say, they were wrong. They were not, I, they were not wrong to make that claim in 1990. Uh -huh. And no one is wrong to be making that claim now. So I know there's this sort of open question that I know you all have talked about, and no one wants to face the question or answer it. And the question is, is do we feel comfortable saying there is a massive surge and uptick? Is there, like, is there a major trend shift happening right now? And although I didn't say this, in, in the various histories in which there have been proclaimed hate crime epidemics, mm -hmm. the scholarship, in particular the scholarship of James Jacobs, says no one contests it, but there's not proof. And that's the way the scholarship is going to challenge it. I'm just going to say, I, I want to turn that on its head and say, I do think that there's um, pretty, I think there's serious and considerable violence against Asian Americans now, and there has been for the last few years. I think that that is 
also true for uh, a number of other people and number of other groups. And so the question for me isn't, is it, is it real? And should we be paying attention to it now? The question is, given that it's always real and there, why is this the story that is coming out now? And why is this the form that elites are deciding to address a, a wide variety of very serious concerns that people have about their lives? And, you know, I don't, I, I do worry that this is gonna sound conspiratorial. I'm just gonna go ahead and say, 2020 was a major year where 27 million people showed up to protest under the banner Black Lives Matter. And certainly, I don't think everyone stands with defund the police, but defund the police emerged as a major slogan. Mm -hmm. And here we are just a few months into 2021, and we have two major framings that are utterly redemptive for policing. The first is we need more police to protect democratic institutions because far-right extremists are on the hunt for all of us. The January attack in the Capitol. Yeah. And then the second story is Asians, especially elderly Asian Americans, are so vulnerable for attack that instead of defund the police, we need to double down. <laughs> I, I almost wonder, listening to you talk, um, that if if you're also kind of saying that Rather than kind of, you know, the caricature might be something like this, you're sort of anti or a position critical of policing would kind of attribute everything to policing. That might be a caricature, right? But it, it almost sounds like you're saying when we get into a debate about police good or bad, that itself is kind of a strategic or rhetorical problem. That the problem is that we get into a referendum on or police good or bad rather than um, why are why isn't the government addressing social violence, inequality, poverty, et cetera, through means other than policing itself, right? That policing becomes a distraction from um, all the other reasons, all the other kind of causes for violence, um, everyday violence. I mean, I don't know if that's, you, if you would agree with that, but it almost kind of sounds like that is, that, that thought it might be emerging out of what you're saying. The offer of policing and punishment becomes that which is supposed to placate but then do you wonder, I mean, I guess I wonder if, is it also kind of like, like to talk to like Carl Chan or these sort of Chinatown activists, right, that it might be more useful to kind of get a, get away from this debate around policing, even though we know we have our, we have your sort of very clear, good substantive criticisms of it, but to kind of maybe make policing less, less the fixation of the conversation and more about things beyond policing. Yes, but, absolutely. Right? Yes. Yeah. What is the proper response, though, as as people, because uh, I know a lot of people who listen to the show consider themselves abolitionists or are at least trying to dream of an abolitionist world and I think feel very challenged when they see videos like the one that circulated from Midtown Manhattan last week um, of the violence perpetrated against a 65-year-old woman. What is what is the proper abolitionist response to that moment? Because, um, you know, obviously... I think people, in a way, it's kind of easier to imagine this kind of long-term world building mm -hmm. in which we would have a better set of circumstances so that these things don't need to just be, you know, we don't have such a limited menu. Mm -hmm. um, but given that we are in the world that we are in, do you, you know, press click and recirculate that video? Do you kind of 
you know, do you respond to this thing of, yeah, we have to catch this person because he's dangerous. We need to get justice for this woman. Like, what do you do as, as like a, you know, sort of a, a willing abolitionist in this struggle? Mm-hmm. The conditions are never just going to be there for abolition to occur. There are always going to be hard steps and one has to take, I think, a principled stance. And I will say the carceral state grows because of the feeling of um, urgency, right? Mm. And I, I know that feeling of urgency. I, I know that. And, um, and again, I do think that this is, there's no part of me that is willing to say this is a contrived crime way. This is a contrived, um, uh, non-existent. So I, I, I do think something major is happening. The to-do is something that I think many organizations are already doing, um, offering to walk with people, um, offering to escort people, sometimes just being in groups can make a big difference. Um, I do think that there are certain tools that um, are being distributed and learned more broadly, tools that in particular are coming from communities that have never felt comfortable calling the police and would and would never feel ever call the police. I'm thinking in particular of, say, um, uh, trans communities, in particular the, the overwhelming population of homeless and gender, trans and gender nonconforming young people. Yeah. Um, and frankly, it's some incredible work that's been coming out of um, Asian massage parlor organizers who've been, who've been talking for a long time about the things that they do to keep each other safe knowing that they cannot call the police, and in fact, the police will only make things worse. And I know that's scary. And it feels like you're asking people to suck it up and, mm-hmm. and, and to take it. I also think it's true that police will not make anyone actually safer. There is no evidence that they bring anything except for some people maybe a feeling of security. And I'm sorry, we're we're actually going to have to do better. I know that sounds harsh and rough, but part of the reason why we have this infrastructure of hate crime statutes in every state is that it's very hard for anyone at any moment to say, I'm sorry, we have to find a better way. Um, But I'm sorry, we have to find a better way. We have to stop feeding this infrastructure. Yeah, I was struck by the fact that the calls for policing could come in response to, for instance, the private violence that has been perpetrated against Asian elders who were very poor, like can collectors, people who are engaged in the informal economy, because that's one of the groups of laboring people that is the most policed, actually, and that has been so harmed in just their daily work by police. Yes. So I think on some level, there's also a disconnect between like the people who are, you know, kind of chattering class enabled to be able to make certain claims about who or who who or who does not benefit from the police right versus the those you know the actual victims yes yeah that's right and here's what i'm going to say i've i'm actually 
I'm curious what you think. Do you think there is a, a massive, big demand for more police and penalty enhancements? It's hard to tell. I mean, we're just reading the internet. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. I think, I think on some, I think there is a, a mass desire for recognition. Yes. And that as you've been outlining, recognition in our society often gets translated in carceral vocabulary. Yes. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think we have good polling. I think organizers, though, you know, just through kind of anecdotal evidence, are encountering a lot of feelings of this might be helpful. Policing might be helpful for us. Yeah, and your example of the, you said 1990 legislation, where hate crime legislation was kind of justified in the name of protecting um, queer communities, right? Um, And how it was sort of this conservative legislation, but justified in the name of this particular group. The other example I think of is Clinton ending Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or Mm -hmm. trying to end um, the gay ban in the military, and how that was kind of celebrated, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was kind of celebrated, right, as a civil rights victory for for queer people but at the same time like big picture like you're still promoting like militarism and citizenship in a very conservative institution and i think in 2021 those things are very like the criticism of i guess pinkwashing right the criticism of using one group as as cover for a conservative agenda is very clear in in those contexts and i wonder if this what needs to happen is maybe 20 years from now asian american political discussions will be more um, nuanced and we can kind of ha- you know have two thoughts at once in terms of recognition of our group but at the same time what is actually good or bad politics um, and do we support or not right conservative state institutions and I think yeah I wonder if like maybe that's a conversation that um, among Asian Americans has to happen yeah I, I have to say I I think it is happening so I'm gonna turn I want to be optimistic for a minute. So in 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 all of the store in all of the history that we have of building the carceral state as the histories get fuller we do learn that there are um, there are always radical contingents within fighting for another way. So in the passage of the Violence Against Women Act which was a fairly massive expansion of funding for the, the for for police and prisons there are and have long been contingents of um, of activists who are fighting carceral feminism mm-hmm. and are truly demanding a better way. Likewise, I want to be clear that the the work that we see coming up through the Gay and Lesbian Task Force Against Violence was in some ways counter to the the mass of organizing that was happening that was clearly recognizing police as a force that um, violently regulate gender and sexuality and could never be made a protector, right? And I do think Asian Americans are having this conversation and um, I have to say, I, I feel really impressed and proud and full of love for some of the abolitionist organizing that's happened in Asian American communities. And 
I want to say I'm, I'm not convinced that there is some clear majority that is standing on the side of prison America. So I want to give a few examples because I think we are deciding what to become. I think there's a demand mm-hmm. for recognition, but in the demand for recognition, there's also the feeling of I want to be recognized for the weeness of Asian America. And the weeness is something we make. And we make through struggle. So I'm going to go ahead and say this. There are at least 25 Asian American organizations that, that have come out in the last two weeks to stand for decriminalization of sex work. There are organizations that have written their own statements um, organizations like the, uh, the Chinatown International District Coalition. Um, I think uh, the Asian American Feminist Collective has done incredible work. Seattle's Massage Parlor Outreach Program has done mm-hmm. great work. Um, Red Canary Song, um, uh, uh, one of the organizers on your show last week, who was incredible, they wrote, they wrote a fantastic abolitionist statement, not just decriminalization, but an abolitionist yeah. statement, and more than 21 Asian American organizations signed on in support of an abolitionist statement, including AAPI Women Lead, the Southeast Asian Freedom Network, um, Asian Youth for Civic Engagement. And not only that, I thought that the statement that came out from Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta Mm. was Mm -hmm. excellent and powerful and said explicitly we reject increased police presence and carceral solutions of any kind. And there were more than 89 organizations, Asian American organizations that signed on to that statement. I, I think people are showing up in the right ways. I think that abolition has clearly had an influence and there are people making an influence. I'm actually starting to wonder who are the real powerful organized interests who are putting forward hate crime legislation huh. is that which we want. I've been talking a long time. If you want to ask me that question, I'll answer it. <laughs> yeah, who do you think it is? <laughs> <laughs> Name names, Naomi. All right. So I'll turn to New York in particular because New York is doing, New York is, mm. is it's a big, it's a big carceral state. It's a big Asian American state. Um, there are some pretty disturbing proposals on the table for, for what should happen. Um, the ADL, which we should talk about in a minute, stands on the side of, of all of the expansions that we're seeing everywhere. Um, there's a pretty serious statement uh, in favor of hate crime expansion coming out of the Asian American Bar Association in New York. Um, this is a document that came out just uh, in, I believe, in February 2021. So it was after the August creation of the task force, um, which mm-hmm. is something they celebrated. And the uh, NYPD policing yeah, task force, right? Yes. And then, you know, bar associations are professional organizations that represent uh, judges and, and lawyers and, and everyone through this. So it's not a surprise that they are putting forward recommendations that feed and support their own professional advancement. And this is why we so often call it the prison industrial complex, not because it generates profits per se, but because there is an industrial 
professionalized, speed up, ascend the ranks kind of quality to all of it. So after the Bar Association, the Asian American Bar Association of New York acknowledges that Asian Americans are quite divided on the issue. And they even give a shout out to Ron Kim, who is so amazing, I can't imagine, Mm, I kind of can't believe that he got elected and he's so awesome. And then they go through after sort of that nod, oh, Asian Americans are mixed, and they give all of their recommendations for massive enhancement of penalties and more uh, more promotion of Asian Americans through the ranks, especially um, in high-level uh, commanding officer positions and through judgeships, because this could be a very important way for Asian Americans to trust the criminal justice system if all of these good lawyers are just promoted up through the ranks. And there's some fairly amazing statements about the need to mirror um, the 1970s creation of the so-called Jade Squad that was there to police um, Chinese gangs. (laughs) And and in some really transparent statements about self-promotion, the Bar Association just says, the careers of police officers were quote unquote made as they did important work in the Jade Mm. Squad. Their work produced important promotions for those who served in the Jade Squad. And then concomitantly, we should go ahead and model what they they did, which was create these special units and work with district attorney's offices. And then they recommend something truly uh, that, okay, so I'll say with a lot of the hate crime stuff, it's definitely a step in the wrong direction. It's it's unclear how big of a step in the wrong direction it is because hate crimes in the past have not been prosecuted very much, so we don't know what the impact will be. I'll go ahead and say (laughs) if the New York Bar Association has its way, this could be a very big step in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Part of what they're advocating for is that the, the presumption be that crimes against Asians in the time of COVID Mm. are presumptively counted as hate crimes, Mm -hmm. which would mean then prosecutors are, it's incumbent upon them to do certain types of investigations and pursue a a penalty enhancement. Um, That could be major, it's very ugly, it could be major, and their interests are really showing. It's interesting that you mentioned the Jade Squad because in that moment in Chinatown too, of course, there was really it was really divided around whether the police were helpful or not because a lot of businesses obviously and community members obviously felt that they were kind of terrorized by ch- local Chinese gangs who occupied certain territories within Chinatown and welcomed the the Jade Squad. Right, that's right. <laughs> and others who were like, obviously, this isn't helpful, yeah. and we sort of have our, a handle on our own community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it sort of repeats. Um, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, foreign policy connections. Um, I mean, even in your book, because you talk a lot about the Truman era and kind of his, how much he loved federalism, (laughs) kind of expanding the federal state, that was something that worked not only in policing, but, you know, also um, around the Korean War, for instance, Mm -hmm. and other sort of um, foreign policy interventions. And after the Atlanta killings, there was a lot of kind of Asian American thinking about how this sort of connected for people to U.S. empire. And, you know, um, we talked a little bit about that on our show. Um, and, and I was reading your introduction to Miriam Kaba's new book, We Do This Till We Free Us. And in that, you also make a connection between the 800 U.S. military bases around the world and, um, you know, sort of things that have happened domestically from slavery and the disposition of Native Americans to the present police state. 
Um, can you talk about that? Because I think that those connect that sort of connection is something that Asian Americans, in a way, we have a kind of special purchase on analyzing. Mm-hmm. And I will say one of the many reasons we use the framework of the prison industrial complex is that the notion of the, the military industrial complex has been so, in a sense, um, illuminating for showing all of the tentacles of violence. Um, and this, and the seamless way that they move um, home and abroad, I, you know, I feel like you've said most of the good things that I would want to say, Tammy. Um, I don't think I can say anything more interesting than what you've said. Is that maybe okay? Maybe I'll just maybe I'll give this a try. There are many reasons why I'm not so into the slogan or hashtag "Stop Asian Hate." And I'm not into it because it connects to a category of the criminal legal system, but but other than that, it doesn't actually name a program, right? It doesn't actually, and and it doesn't even allow us to intuit to a program of what we want to demand. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this is an important moment to, um, it's always an important moment to identify um, what our targets and what our demands are. And I'll say, I, I think that there are always limits to way, the ways we can generalize from a single event. Right? I will say, however, I am embracing of any analytical move that connects um, violence at home to all of the violence that the US military exports, um, pursues, loves, fabricates, that generates all of the sort of, um, the, the context that have to create race as we know it and allow for that seamless move um, uh, across borders of, of all kinds of um, uh, content of economic expro- expropriation and racial oppression, right? Which is a way of saying if the demand is closed military bases, we have to finally end the Cold War for God's sakes. Um, I think that's a very good demand. If, if it were stop Asian hate, demilitarize. Stop Asian mm-hmm. hate, close all yeah. the base. Stop, stop Asian hate, um, stop occupying Okinawa. Right? That these, are, yeah. th- these would be excellent programs for all of us to pursue. Mm. What do you, what do, I want to know what you want to say, though. I, I think it's, I don't know that I know yet. I mean, we've... I think in processing Atlanta, we were talking a little bit about the fact that obviously there are these historical connections, but also we don't want to put too much weight on the backs of the victims. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I've been a little bit torn about it, but certainly, I mean, I, I like that as a sign suggestion. <laughs> and I've also felt um, a little bit of the sense of lack around not having a positive political program here. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. What do you think about the fact that, you know, Asian America as a concept, obviously having been created in this kind of third worldist moment, has always been rooted in at least a kind of imagined or aspirational connection to Black America, to Chicano America, you know, to Native America. Um, but, but that a lot of these recent incidents have been perpetrated by Black people on video. And so the kind of spectacle of it is, you know, Black on Asian violence, quote unquote. Um, and is very, you know, kind of 
is divisive in that sense, I guess, um, of, of our dream of kind of, you know, anti-white supremacist unity. Mm-hmm. What do we do with that? And, you know, have you been thinking about that as like an Asian person in African-American studies department? Like, what do what does this dialogue look like mm-hmm. when we have this interracial violence? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if I'm convinced that we should think of it as interracial violence or call it interracial violence. I'll go ahead and say, um, I have seen some of the terrible videos. Um, I'm not at all convinced about um, uh, some uptick in African-American attacks on Asians. Um, If we look at some of the earlier work that's been done to the extent that we do have data, um, the vast majority of hate crimes committed against the, of the, of the vast majority of the crimes that were marked as hate crimes mm-hmm. through uniform crime reports, when we know the perpetrator, the perpetrator is still white in more than 75% of the cases. Um, and that's data that doesn't come up to the present, but, but includes a, a few years and I think ends in, in 2014. Mm. And maybe Maybe more generally, I'll say this, like, what is our analysis of the world if we're looking at criminal events or crime statistics? It will, we will never be able to produce a meaningful social and political analysis if, if these are the events and data sets that we are looking at. So if you were to just look at the Uniform Crime Report And if you were to take the word crime as a measure of harm, you would deduce that the United States has a problem of class warfare that is mostly poor people attacking each other and sometimes a tiny bit up. And you would deduce that African-Americans are um, uh, predatory on themselves and other people. In other words, if you were to look at crime data and what we call crime and how we measure it, you would have the exact mirror opposite analysis Mm. of the world than than the world we actually have. Mm. And this is my way of saying, I don't actually think we can look at um, a handful of events that we mark as crime and come up with any meaningful social understanding of what's happening of who's doing what to whom, of whom's stealing from whom, of whom is of who's killing whom in the greatest numbers, of how people are dying, of who dies first and who laughs last. We will never get to that analysis if we look at anything in crime reporting. And part of the reason why it makes me so mad that the justification for hate crime funding and especially federal funding is we need more data. We need more analysis. We need better counts of all of the hate right. crimes. What kind of count produced in this way would give us any meaningful information for social distribution of power, for economic exploitation, and for what we need to do? Nothing. There is nothing. There is no form of counting of, of crimes, the way we count crimes, that could answer anything that we need to know. And then you asked about African-American studies, and I want to give one example. So um, Stuart Hall's Policing the Crisis, which is um, 
uh, of course, a touchstone text within African-American studies. It has a lot to tell us about what happens when there are special, when there is a specially named crime, in this case, mugging, and then institutions rally to monitor mugging, so they create special police forces and new ways of counting it, which creates an amplification effect. So it, start, it looks like there's some kind of mugging crisis. And then it looks like in the story of uh, Great Britain in the 1970s, it looks like a, a story of uh, black British people attacking the crown, <laughs> which was the story people wanted and the story people manufactured. <laughs> And, and a very telling example of what ruling class elites do with crime stories and crime panics to get us all to stare at the wrong things. Mm. I, w- I wonder if, I think what you're portraying is like very, very useful in terms of like big picture analysis and like what, what we should um, caution ourselves against falling into. I wonder if we could even just kind of ask, perhaps even like a, you know, from my perspective, maybe even a stupidly dumb concrete question about, you know, how at a practical level, what do you think our response should be to say this attack in Midtown where the, as, as far as the details we know, right, that this, this man was um, on per- lifetime parole. And so yeah. like, it's very seductive to think, well, he just should just go back to prison and that's the solution. He shouldn't have never been, you know, let out of prison and so on. Um, what, in a sort of very immediate sense, like what, what what do you think our reaction should be to processing the details of that attack? So, I th- I'm okay. So I think I just said I don't like doing social analysis through any particular attacks because I don't. I really don't. I think any single incident doesn't tell us very much, right? So, Tammy, you made a comment about not wanting to put too much analytical weight on the backs of um, the, the women murdered in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I really hear that. And I think that's why we're all struggling when we look at these wide variety of, ta- of attacks that's, that, that look both similar and also very, very different. So there have been a number of very of high-profile attacks where it is someone who is unhoused, is, an, is a homeless person who has been criminalized because homeless people are criminalized, who, who does or says something, and these, these are also some of the people most likely to get charged with the hate crime penalty enhancement. Okay, so we have this, it does present a sort of conundrum because we have this we're trying to do analysis around this constellation of events and we don't know how the events adhere right yeah and and then it presents this other challenge which is we are calling it anti-asian violence and we are going through this phase where there's some um uh, uh let's just say history 101 happening in public discourse and the history 101 tends to go something like page act Chinese ex- Chinese American <laughs> yeah. exclusion, 
um, Attack on the Philippines, other foreign wars, Japanese-American internment, then Vincent Chin, and now Atlanta. Right. right? <laughs> so we get the and and I do appreciate any amount of historical filling in the blanks. But what happens when it, when we narrate history that way is that we come up with one thing called anti-Asian violence, and we can't get anywhere beyond that because we can't actually look at um, the incentives of U.S. imperialism and control of the labor market when we line up history and enunciate it that way. And there's something similar happening in this cluster of attacks that we see that in some ways have very different conditions of possibility, but we're naming it all as anti-Asian violence. And then something really challenging happens when you do, Tammy, what you just did and you've stepped back from, which is you're trying to figure out the content of anti-Asian violence. Like, how do I link this to a program, to an analysis, to something that's going to get me to the political work that we need to do? And I actually think we need to be asking all of these questions about all of the attacks. And I know I just said it's hard to do so. It is hard to do social (laughs) analysis through. But if we asked all of the questions about all of the attacks, I do think we could start to develop a bigger politics. It just gets tricky because when you try to do it, I feel like someone's on the precipice of accusing me of decentering anti-Asian violence. So actually, it's right. So it's really important to say a lot of these attacks are by homeless people. Why are we going to talk about like? Shouldn't the question be why in the richest country in the world do we have almost six hundred thousand people who are permanently unhoused and the numbers only seem to be increasing? That seems like a or right. And then I feel like someone's going to say, why are you trying to decenter anti-Asian violence? Or similarly <laughs> with the attacks in Atlanta, I feel like yeah. an equally valuable framework in addition to militarization could be why are there so many low-wage workers who are killed at work. Totally. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is how, you know, what happened in New York, the coverage of that versus the coverage of Atlanta, but then even the coverage of non, you know, attacks that have been happening in this country for the last few weeks have nothing to do with Asians, right? The coverage is different all across the board when probably they're all kind of, you know, related to somehow. We're all kind of part of this moment of just like poverty and desperation and abandonment by the government. That's right. And I, th- yeah, I, th- I think I'm, I hear, I, I take your point very well that even calling it anti Asian violence is itself a sort of reification of race a priori, right? Like we don't necessarily have to do that. And it may be the case that, you know, someone says something, you know, that's racist and Asian, but that kind of, we still have to think about well, like race might be racism might be the sort of like phenomenal expression of something, right? But that's, that's right. not necessarily people don't walk around looking for targets based on their skin color. Necess- maybe maybe some people do. Who knows, right? Who knows? But I think <laughs> we. I think my starting assumption is like it happens, it comes up, but it's not necessarily how humans operate. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's right. And then if we're attending to the expression, or if, it, if the expression is what they have in common, and that's all we can organize around, then we are by definition only demanding a superficial reform to expressions of racism, which will never get, 
will never get us to where we need to go. Naomi, it's been so great having you. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? I didn't name drop enough. (laughs) So can I just say, can I add a few footnotes? That'd be great. So um, some incredible books to read that have helped me so much. Christina Hanhart's book, Safe Space, Gay Neighborhood History and the Politics of Violence. A fantastic book, incredibly um, uh, painful and relevant to what Mm. we're seeing with hate crime expansion right now. Um, Chunin Reddy's Freedom with Violence, Dean Spade's Normal Life, um, anything from Insight, um, the Insight Anthology on the Color of Violence, um, anything and everything by Miriam Kava and Ruth Wilson (laughs) Gilmore. And and I do wanna give um, just an expression of love to the Asian American abolitionist organizing that's been really vocal and such an important voice during this time. I think Asian American Feminist Collective has been amazing. I think AAAJ Atlanta has been amazing. There are also just some amazing individuals, Victoria Law, Dylan Rodriguez, Asian Americans who've been really central to abolitionist organizing for the better part of 20 years. Um, it feels, it can, you know, things can feel discouraging, right? Not just the, the fear, but also the immediate carceral response. But I'll just say it, we're, we're here. Good work is happening. And there are groups to stand with, right? And um, I'm feeling a, a, a good amount of love. Thank you so much, Naomi. Yeah. And everyone should, of course, read Naomi's book. Um, and Mariam Kaba and Vicky Law both have new books out too, which will help us through some of these issues. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you, Andy. Nice to see you guys. Thank you. Great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Time to say goodbye.